or, or you know, take any kind of hot button issue in our day. There are people who are uh, involved in that issue because they have deeply held moral convictions and religious beliefs connected to that issue. There are other people who are like, all right, we got the religious people. Let's see who else we can get in this coalition to accomplish this political goal. It's this happens all the time. Uh, this is a this is a pattern throughout history. So, what what do you got? For yeah, us? we want to go. To, we, <laughs> we've been wanting to get away from Italy for a long, right. long time. What do we you love got? This. What do you got? We love you, Martin Luther. Hello and welcome to another hearty and wholesome episode of On the Journey with Matt Swaim and Ken Hensley. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. I used to work at Family Christian Store and play in Christian bands and uh, went to Bible college and did a few other things. Ken, though, Ken was a Baptist pastor. Either way, we both ended up in the Catholic Church. That's part of what the series is about. If you want to meet us and more people who have similar stories to ours, if such a thing were possible. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. That's the website for the Coming Home Network. And especially come visit our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Ken, how are you? Good job. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. Thank you. I got a new computer here, and, and I think that the notifications are on. So if we have a few bells ringing during the show, I apologize. I don't know how to turn them off quickly. Uh, that'll probably be Seth and his editing. As a matter of fact, I can hear the bells ringing now. They're singing. You can so, hear... What? No, don't worry about it, Ken. Only the listeners and me oh, can wait. hear the bells. As See, now we've gone insane already, and Matt, it's, uh, Seth's going to have to screw around with it. Hold on, let's stop. Hold on. Um, you ready to talk more about the Reformation? Yes, yes. All right, so... In fact, I, I, think, I think you can see I'm... You, you're, I think you can see itching. I'm eager. You're eager. Yeah. You're eager to talk about the Reformation. Well, I'm a little less eager to talk about what we're talking about this week because this is where we get into just the mess, the absolute mess. We've talked about some other aspects yeah. of the cultural movements yeah. that were in play that, you know, kind of gave rise to the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Now we get to talk about the, the just the absolute hot mess that the Catholic Church was when the Reformation happened. The series that we're doing, we're doing a short series that I've titled, What Was the Reformation and Why Did It Happen?, And we're asking two essential questions here, Matt. First, what was the Reformation? And what I mean by that is, at its heart, what was it? What was it in essence? And then the second question, why did it happen? And why did it happen when it happened? Now, as to the first question, uh, you and I have seen that the Reformation was not about the creation of a new religion, first of all. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and the other Reformers They never saw themselves as teaching anything other than the Christianity of the apostles and of the early church. It wasn't about introducing a new religion, that is the Reformation coming to pass, nor was the Reformation we've seen, nor was it at its heart a doctrinal dispute, although it entailed a number of doctrinal disputes and more as time passed. No, essentially, in answering the question, what was the Reformation, we saw that the Reformation was a reaction against, and in the end, a, a revolt, a full-on revolt against, the idea that Christ had established on earth a united spiritual authority, an authoritative church, and that the Catholic Church 
was that authority, that the Catholic Church represented that authority. Okay, that's what the Reformation was at its heart. Why did it happen? Well, this is where we began last week, and I'm just recapping quickly. We began last week by looking at the answer to that question, why did it happen and why did it happen when it happened? And we described three explosions that really rocked Christendom in the decades leading up to the Reformation of the early 16th century. There was the creation or there was the invention of the printing press, which led to the first explosion. That is an explosion in literacy throughout Catholic Europe. As the printing press, I mean, hot off the press came pamphlets, written materials of all kinds, and at prices that at least some people could begin to afford. Literacy increased dramatically. The second explosion resulted from that. It was an explosion of new ideas, and especially new theological ideas. Filling Europe, new colleges, new universities were popping up everywhere, and there were new theological faculties at these schools, and they were all discussing the new ideas that resulted from the new printing, the new books, the new pamphlets, all of it, okay? And then the third uh, explosion that we looked at last week was the rise of a, a, an educational philosophy at the time that we refer to as humanism. Um, it, it arose from the, Renaissance, from the Renaissance of the 14th century, really, in Italy. And what it was was a, a, a philosophy of education that basically was saying the the official doctors of the Catholic Church, the scholastic theologians, are dry, abstract, boring. We don't want to hear from them anymore. Instead, their battle cry was ad fontes, back to the fountains, back to the sources. We want to learn by going back to the early sources, which meant for them um, the classics of Greek-Roman uh, culture, um, the early church fathers, and the scriptures, the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament. That's so, where we. That's where we left off. And and just to uh, to contextualize it in the long view of Christian history, there have been conflicts. There have been new ideas. There have been even new technologies. One might say, like roads yeah. or trade routes. Um, there are things like this that have happened throughout the course of the history of Christianity. Uh, but you've got those three factors. We're going to talk about, talk about some more factors that actually compound all of those because they're happening around the same time. Um, again, the church has mm -hmm. gone through a thousand mm -hmm. reformations, but this one in 1517 had a whole bunch of other things in play that kind of make it sort of explode in the way that it does. Yeah. In, in fact, last week I used an analogy. I said that Martin Luther, that's the 1517 you're referring to, Martin Luther caused the reformation uh, like a man who strikes a match in a room filled with gas, you could say causes a fire. And what I meant by that is what we're describing here, and that is that the atmosphere was already present in the room of late um, medieval Catholicism. Um, this is what I meant when I said at the time that there were historical forces, cultural forces, and today we're going to look at moral forces, spiritual forces that were at um, at play at the time that, that I would say were actually driving the world in the direction that it was to go. Um, today, we want to look, as you mentioned, we want to look at more of these forces, one of them theological today, another one historical, we could say, and then a third, moral, spiritual. Okay, so first of all, the theological one. First of all, there was the rise of an emphasis during the same time, the rise of an emphasis on personal religion, on religion as being something personal and individual. In 1503, 
Not surprisingly, it came from the humanist priest Erasmus. Erasmus published a little book. Its title was The Enchiridion, or Handbook of the Christian Soldier. And what this book emphasized, Matt, was the need for Christians to have a personal faith in Christ and the need for Christians to nourish that faith by the personal reading of Scripture. Now that there was a printing press, now that printing was available, now that you could buy books, now that it, now that it didn't take two years to hand copy a Bible, now that people could have the Word of God, faith should be personal, and Christians should nourish that faith by the personal reading of Scripture. And he also focused on the fact that the church ought to be nourishing itself by the reading of Scripture as well. Well, here's the thing. This book was an absolute instantaneous hit. It would, in today's you know, language, it would have been on the New York Times bestseller list, and it would have been there a long time. Erasmus's book went through 23 editions in the first six years alone. It was literally being devoured throughout Catholic Europe. And of course, I'm sure you would want to say, Erasmus was right in insisting that our relationship with Christ ought to be intimate and personal. It ought to be. In fact, in the Catechism, I looked this up because I wanted to get an actual source. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, faith is defined as, and I'm quoting now, the commitment of the entire person to God. So when we talk about faith in Christ, or when we talk about putting our faith in God, putting our trust in God, we're talking about a commitment of the entire person, mind, emotions, and will to God. In other words, faith must be internal. It must be inward. It must be personal. Erasmus was not wrong at all in what he said here. Nor was he saying anything new in the history of Christianity, uh, right? Yeah. This is, you got saint after saint who writes and talks like this. Yes. Uh, Benedict of Nursia talks and writes like this. St. Augustine's confessions are all about this sort of thing. When St. Patrick in the 5th century mm -hmm. says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. If that's not a description of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then I don't know what is. This is not new in the history of Christianity. It's a re reclamation and revival yeah. is one of the words that we would have used to describe it in my tradition, a revival among sort of the stale, yeah. you know, kind of academic arm's length Christianity that was going on at that time. Yeah, and this gets back to a point that you made uh, uh, last week and in a few minutes ago, that there were plenty of reformations through the history of the church, as there were plenty of saints who appeared plenty of times to address a dryness that had come about within the, within the church. So yeah, this is happening again, and Erasmus's book is really uh, scratching people where they're itching at the time. In fact, in his biography of John Calvin, uh, the Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath, who we've been quoting, and we're going to continue to quote some, he tells us that the ideas expressed by Erasmus in this book were spreading everywhere at the time, and they weren't in any sense considered heretical. You know, here's what McGrath says. In Italy, the movement often known as Catholic evangelicalism, with its stress on the question of personal salvation, became firmly established within the church, even penetrating deeply within the hierarchy without being regarded as in any way heretical. So this may have felt like a new idea at the time. 
it may have been, his book may have been selling like hotcakes because it was addressing a real need at the time. But you're entirely right. This is not something new. This is something that was in the gospel. It's something that our Lord taught, that the apostles taught, and that the church has taught again and again and again and been taught again and again and again. And what I want to say here is this. The new appreciation for the individual then, rising out of the Italian Renaissance, it had a positive side to it. Okay. I mean, in art, we think of the masterpieces of Renaissance art. You know, we think of the focus on the individual, on the human person, in sculpture, in painting, in art of all kinds. The statues of Michelangelo, paintings of Raphael, Caravaggio, and others. And then I would say, read the Old and New Testaments, and we find the same focus on the individual. God deals with his people personally. He, he deals with them corporately, his people Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New. But he deals with his, pers- his people personally. And it's clear, and I just want to hammer that for those evangelical friends who may be watching this or listening to this. It's clear that our religion must be personal. It must be individual. It must be to the heart. It must be something that is ours. And at the same time, I think that we could see how combined with some of the other elements that we've looked at already, the printing press, the rise of literacy, explosion of new theological ideas, the colleges, the universities, the theological faculties, the new theological concepts being thrown all over the place, boredom with the official doctors of the church at the time, Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, the other scholastics, the schoolmen. I think that we can see how combined with this, this focus on the individual, even in religion, could feed into a movement of reaction against the church. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just, there are two couple, couple quick points. One is that just as uh, an sure. emphasis on personal responsibility, uh, you know, in a society can either build up that society or cause further splintering and individualism within the society and a form of libertinism mm-hmm. rather than, you know, uh, everybody working together and pulling their load. But just back to that question of art and a personal relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus Christ. Outside of the Trinity, who is the most painted figure in Western history? It's the Virgin Mary. Why? Because she mm-hmm. models more than any person in the history of Christianity what it means to have a close, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So this is not like some new idea. It's a recovery and a revival and, a, mm-hmm. you know, a reanimation of what Christianity is in, as St. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection to become like him in his death and share in his resurrection. This is what Christianity is. It's a reclamation of that. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think we'll see in a few minutes here why that might've fed into an anti-clericalism uh, and uh fed into a movement of revolt against the church too, even though this is something that the church has taught again and again and again and should have taught always. Okay, at the same time, here's number two. Here's the historical force that we want to add today. Europe was witnessing the rise of nationalism. Okay, now think of that word individualism again. This trend toward individualism in the decades leading up to the Reformation and arising out of the Renaissance It didn't express itself merely in the individualism of persons, but also in the individualism of peoples, of nations. Um, The fact is, at the time, throughout Catholic Europe, there was an increasingly strong spirit of resentment felt toward centralized authority of all kinds, the authority of the church and the authority of the empire as well. Now, with respect to the church, 
this uh, this manifests itself as anti-clericalism, and this was rampant at the time. And with respect to the empire, it manifests itself as the rise of nationalism. That is, the idea of a holy Roman empire is beginning to fracture at this time on a political level. Nations are on the rise. And I want to quote again from Alistair McGrath on this. For instance, he says, in Germany, intense resentment was felt against the Pope. In part, this reflected an incipient German nationalism marked by a resentment of all things Italian. It also reflected popular irritation at the fact that ecclesiastical revenues, including proceeds of indulgence sales, were destined for Rome and the maintenance of the somewhat extravagant lifestyles, building programs, and political adventures of the Renaissance popes. In other words, you know, the Germans are simply resenting the fact that revenues are being taken from them and shipped over the Alps to Italy and to the Pope. In many ways, uh, continuing with uh, McGrath here, in many ways, Luther's reforming program made an appeal to, perhaps even to the point of a crude exploitation of, German nationalism and anti-papalism, allowing the Reformation to ride on the crest of a wave of popular anti-papal resentment. Okay, I won't read it again, but but I mean, take in what he says here at the end. And this is McGrath. This is a world-class Protestant theologian and Protestant historian of doctrine. And he's suggesting here that Luther's program of reform, he's saying it, in many ways, it may have exploited an atmosphere of nationalism and anti-papalism already existent at the time. In fact, he concludes by saying the Reformation was able to, and now I am quoting, ride on the crest of a wave of popular anti-papal sentiment. And this happens all the time throughout <laughs> history, uh, that you know it's, it's easy to say, well, this is a war about religion, when in fact it's a war about land, and a lot of religious people are involved, right? Or this is a war about... Yeah. Um, resources and religious people happen to be involved. You know, there's, there's, it, or, or, you know, take any kind of right. hot button issue in our day. There are people who are uh, involved in that issue because they have deeply held moral convictions and religious beliefs connected to that issue. There are other people who are like, all right, we got the religious people. Let's see who else we can get in this coalition to accomplish this political goal. It's this happens all the time. Uh, this is a this is a pattern throughout history. So it wouldn't surprise me that there are a lot right. of people who are like, yes, Martin Luther, we agree with your frustration over the selling of indulgences, and we have a moral imperative to join you in this religious, you know, idea that you're trying to put forth on the world. But there's also probably some German princes who are like, yeah, we never liked those Italians anyway. What what do you got? Yeah, for us? we want to go. To, we, <laughs> we've been wanting to get away from Italy for a long, right. long time. What do we you love got? This. What do you got? We love you, Martin Luther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are good points. Okay, so what we're saying here is that along with the other factors that we've discussed so far, we have this factor at play at the time. The very idea of centralized authority is being rejected. Individualism in religion is on the rise. Individualism of nations is also on the rise. Christendom is beginning to fracture and to break apart. And now we're going to move on to the third point that we're going to spend the majority of our time on. This is really key. And I want to state this just as clearly as I can. It wasn't simply because of all the new ideas that were in the wind. It wasn't simply that. The resentment that was felt toward the Catholic Church, the hierarchy at the time, was to a significant degree the fault of the Catholic hierarchy. 
I don't know whether to put a 49% on it, 50, 70. I don't, I, I'm not going to try and give it a number, but I'm just saying the resentment that was felt toward Italy, toward the church, was to a significant degree the fault of the church. And this is the third force that we're going to look at today. The one that I mentioned earlier as being the moral or spiritual one. And that is, we were dealing with a church, a Catholic hierarchy at the time, in desperate need of spiritual reform. And this is one I really want to sit on a little bit, Matt, because you and I are Catholic now. And many of those watching this show or listening are Catholic, but many are not. And... Um, I just want to make this clear. I, I want the force of this to really be felt, that we understand this, that we see it, okay? So I'm going to give a number of illustrations as we walk along and we can talk about this. First of all, Martin Luther. In 1510, the young Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, he was sent to Rome on an errand for his order, which was the strictest Augustinian order in Germany at the time. Now, the young monk again, Luther, he had dreamed all his life of being able one day to visit the eternal city, the city where Peter and Paul had come, had preached, where they had been martyred, Paul beheaded, Peter crucified upside down. Luther was excited. He was thrilled at the idea of visiting the great churches of Rome and, and celebrating mass in those churches. Instead, as Luther scholar Heiko Obermann tells us, Quoting Obermann here, later he remembered clearly the shock and horror he had felt in Rome upon hearing for the first time in his life flagrant blasphemies uttered in public. He was deeply shocked by the casual mockery of saints and everything he held sacred. He could not laugh when he heard priests joking about the sacrament of the Eucharist. Now, maybe at least some listening have heard this story of how this experience shattered Martin Luther, and, and there's truth to that. He came back from his trip to Rome, a changed man. And, and if you're a Catholic and you're listening to this, maybe you've been tempted to, to dismiss the whole thing as just anti-Catholic propaganda. Um, the only problem with doing that is that credible Catholics of the time admit the church's hierarchy was in moral shambles. Um, credible authors of the time. In fact, it was a common saying at the time, Matt, that went like this. If there is a hell, then Rome is built upon it. This is a common saying that was floating around at the time. Again, looking at Erasmus, the humanist priest who wrote that book, The Enchiridion, the Handbook of the Christian Soldier, Erasmus spoke of his own experience in Rome in these words, with my own ears, I heard the most loathsome blasphemies against Christ and his apostles. Many acquaintances of mine have heard priests of the Curia, that is of the Roman, of the, of the leadership in Rome, priests of the Vatican. Many acquaintances of mine, Erasmus says, have heard priests of the Curia uttering disgusting words so loudly, even during mass, that all around them could hear it. And so there's, there's truth here, okay? There's truth. And it wasn't only the priests. In the late Middle Ages, in the Middle Ages, in the High Middle Ages, bishops were mainly drawn from the nobility. This is something we all know. And often enough, it was not because they possessed some great spiritual qualities, because they were walking saints. It was because they had the money to purchase their positions. And this happened. There are all sorts of examples of wealthy families, Catholic families, gaining control of the ecclesiastical affairs in some particular area and ruling there. That is a family ruling for years and years and years and just putting their brothers and, you know, uh, their sons and, 
and cousins and all on the on the throne again and again and again. They viewed their realm. I mean, often they didn't even live in the diocese that they re, that, that that they um, led. They viewed their diocese as as a realm from which they could draw revenues, uh, which they could spend on their own political ambitions or on their entertainments of one kind or another. Um, certainly, there were some shining lights. We know that there were saints. There are always saint here and there, but many were not. I'll give you an example, unless you have one you want to throw in. Oh, I've um, got but, one. I've got yeah. one of actually uh, one who, okay. who who turned around and came back. Uh, so my favorite example of this is St. Peter Gonzalez, mm-hmm. uh, who was a 13th century Dominican, educated by his uncle, who was a bishop, and got uh, through the ranks of nepotism to where he was uh, an advisor, a chaplain mm-hmm. to King Ferdinand of Castile. Castile, you know, he's, I can't, my Castilian accent is never very good. But this is a young man mm-hmm. who cares nothing for the priesthood. He cares only for his own ability to be seen in the royal mm-hmm. courts. And so, uh, as it happens, there was a, a procession where he was going to be riding a horse into a town on some high holy day, and I can't remember which one. It might have even been Christmas. But St. Peter Gonzalez is walking in, Mm -hmm. you know, ego on full display, all the pageantry, and he's essentially paid the peasants to cheer him as he comes in in procession to the town. The problem is, is that as the peasants cheer, they spook his horse. And uh, this is why I like to call St. Peter Gonzalez the uh, Biff Tannen of uh, the Dominican uh, hagiography, if you've ever seen Back to the Future, because the horse throws him onto a pile of manure, and uh, he expects the peasants to just be all shocked and horrified at their noble priest mm-hmm. who has been, you know, fallen on such shame. Instead, they just think it's like the most hilarious thing they've ever seen, right? That and he is essentially, you know, realizes that he's climbed in the ranks of clericalism, basically for the course to to, to satisfy his own ego. He has cared nothing about right, Christ. Right. He's cared nothing about any of this, and he has an actual conversion of heart and then goes and works on the docks in anonymity for the rest of his ministry. But there are plenty of people like St. Peter Gonzalez who never had that change of heart and just continued on rising up the ranks of the clerical state. Well, I'll give you one right here. His name was Albert of Brandenburg. Okay, listen to this. By the time he was 23 years old at the time, he already held the sees of Magdeburg in Germany and Halberstadt. And he wanted the Archbishopric of Mainz as well. He wanted a third, okay? Okay, problem. He needed money. He needed money to pay the installation fees. And also, he needed money because he would have to pay. He understood he would have to pay Pope Leo X at the time for the irregularity of holding three sees simultaneously. You're already making me mad, Ken. You're already making me mad just even explaining the setup of this. Okay, well, now I'm going to quote from former Yale historian Roland Bainton. He's a famous Luther biographer, as he describes the situation. Um, Okay, so Albert needs money. The negotiations of Albert with the popes were conducted through the German banking house of Fugger, which had a monopoly on papal finances in Germany. When the church needed funds in advance of her revenue, she borrowed at usurious rates from the 16th century Rothschilds or Morgans. Indulgences were then issued in order to repay the debts, and the Fugers supervised the collection. They were the collection agency. Knowing the role that they would ultimately play, Albert turned to them for the initial negotiations. He was informed that the Pope demanded 12,000 ducats for the 12 apostles. Come on now. Albert offered seven... (laughs) Albert offered 7,000 
for the seven deadly sins. That sounds about right. They compromised on 10,000, presumably not for the Ten Commandments. Okay, this is true. This is Leo X. He was not exactly a saint. And I, I, I stop and I think about this. I mean, think, Matt, about the first occupant of what we refer to as the chair of St. Peter in Rome. It was Peter. It was a man who, when he first understood who Jesus was, just fell on his face saying, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. This is someone who went on to be crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same direction as his Lord had been crucified. And now we have Leo X occupying the chair of St. Peter at the time when the Protestant revolt really is beginning against the church. And historian J.N.D. Kelly in his Oxford Dictionary of Popes, this is how he describes Pope Leo X. He describes him as, quote, a devious and double-tongued politician and inveterate nepotist. Well, that's crisp and clear. Um, And that's on a good day, it appears, because Roland Bainton describes Leo X in this way. Leo X was as elegant and as indolent as a Persian cat. His chief preeminence lay in his ability to squander the resources of the Holy See on carnivals, war, gambling, and the chase as hunting. I, I give all these illustrations and I give these quotes because I think there's no way to get around it. It's, it's clear that the church's hierarchy at the time of the Reformation was sick and sick from top to bottom. So sick, in fact, that, that one of our saints, St. Saint Ignatius of Loyola, who lived during that time, his, his years are 1491 to 1556, he advised good Catholics against going to Rome lest they be corrupted. And it makes me think, you know, immediately, imagine that now. Imagine Pope John Paul II or Benedict XVI or Pope Francis. Imagine them warning Catholics of the world, whatever you do, unless you want to lose your faith, do not go on pilgrimage to Rome. (laughs) Can you imagine that? And, And if you think that we're exaggerating the situation, I mean, you never know. When you're looking back at history, it's hard to know exactly how accurate accurate your perceptions are but but if someone thinks that we're exaggerating this situation then he would need to explain the confession of pope hadrian the sixth pope hadrian the sixth immediately followed leo the tenth as bishop of rome and he served during the early years of the protestant reformation this is what pope hadrian the sixth had to say we know that for years there have been many abominable offenses in spiritual matters and violations of the commandments committed at this holy see. Yes, that everything has in fact been perverted. The first thing that must be done is to reform the curia, the Vatican leadership. The origin, he says, of all the evil. And so, I mean, just take these words to heart. Notice he doesn't say there have been a few minor missteps. You know, yeah, we need to correct a thing or two. Mistakes you know, were made, say, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't say mistakes were made. Instead, he talks about abominable offenses in spiritual matters. He talks about violations of the commandments. And he says everything has been perverted. And then notice lastly, he doesn't locate the problem somewhere else. You know, like, like Adam, it's that woman you gave me, it's her fault. He doesn't say, oh, it's, uh, it's this priest over there or it's even this bishop over there. He says instead, the curia he says, is the origin of all the evil. And just one last 
quote quickly. Catholic historian Hilaire Belloc agrees, and he put it like this. No one can deny that the evils provoking reform in the church were deep-seated and widespread. They threatened the very life of Christendom itself. All who thought at all about what was going on around them realized how perilous things were and how great was the need of reform. Every kind of man would violently attack such monstrous abuses. It was from all this that the turmoil sprang, and as it increased in violence, threatened to destroy the Christian church itself. That's from his book, The Great Heresies. We've been listing here some of the historical, some of the cultural, spiritual, moral forces that at the time, as I've said, we're, we're literally whipping like, like a horse, driving Christendom in the direction that it was to go in the 16th century. And there are more that could be listed that, that I just chose not to go into. For instance, the rise of the European middle class. This helped to fuel the growing sense of, of independence, obviously, and individualism. We could talk about, well, you kind of mentioned it a little while back. We could talk about the greed of the German princes. You know, these guys who maybe didn't know anything about theology and didn't care anything about the theological issues, but they were thrilled at the prospect of being able to loot the Catholic Church of her wealth, her buildings, her lands, and so forth. So, and so forth. So, you know, the idea that Germany is going to become Protestant and instantly everything that the Catholic Church owned within Germany or the parts of Germany that become Protestant could be scarfed up. So there are other factors as well. But if we just do the math, you know, there's so much here. We've got the invention of the printing press leading to a rapid increase in literacy throughout Christendom. We have with that an explosion of printed literature, an explosion of theological ideas, new colleges, new universities, new theological faculties, throwing these ideas back and forth, debating them, beginning to teach them. Are these just uh, personal opinions? Or is this church teaching becoming confused in this whole thing? A growing emphasis on religion as something personal? The rise of an educational philosophy that it's taking deep root in the universities of the time, which said, the scholastics are boring. Let's get rid of them. Let's go back to the original sources. Let's read the original sources and let's decide for ourselves what we think they are saying. Anti-papal sentiment throughout Catholic Europe and that fueled in great part by a church hierarchy in desperate need of reform, corruption to the highest levels. I can say for myself, I'm sure you've got some things you want to say, but you know, even though looking back now as a Catholic, Matt, I view the Reformation as one of the saddest cases of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in, in the end. Um, the church needed to be reformed, desperately needed to be reformed, but the Reformation ended up just rejecting it um, and starting something else, you know, brand new. So even though I view it in that way, it doesn't surprise me at all that it happened. In fact, I think it would have taken a miracle at the time. God would have had to step in and perform a miracle, which God didn't choose to, to do, um, to keep the Reformation from happening. The atmosphere was exactly right. Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk who had become professor of scripture at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, struck a match. First, by his attacks on the corruption of the church and indulgence sales, 
and then uh, escalating to his attacks on Catholic teaching in certain ways, and then finally his just complete revolt against the authority of the church entirely, you know, calling the Pope then the Antichrist and, and the priest his henchman, and the explosion occurred. The reformers rejected the idea that an authoritative church existed on earth at all. Uh, they decided to stand on the authority, or the final authority at least, of Scripture alone, and uh, the church was shattered, and the visible unity of the church has been shattered ever since. Yeah, it's it's a heartbreaking reality, and uh, one would think, and I did think, you know, because I learned everything I first learned about the Reformation, because in my Christian tradition, we didn't talk much about the Reformation. We talked about, you know, maybe a little bit of the Great Awakening, right? We talked about revivalism, and we talked mm-hmm. about, you know, the great hymn singing, tent revivals, and things like that. We talked about, I mean, if anything, uh, the renewal of God's Spirit, you know, in the United States, uh, more than we did the rejection of the church hierarchy in Europe in the 1600 or 16th century. Um, I learned most of what I learned about the Reformation initially through mm-hmm. public school history classes, right? And so growing up in the South, I didn't think that the Catholic Church was like a thing at all anymore. I thought maybe it's something that a few <laughs> Irish and Italian people still clung to in New York and Boston, mm-hmm. maybe Chicago. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Part of the shock for me when I, you know, started to kind of revisit these questions was that they are still, for some inexplicable reason, a billion Catholics walking around on planet Earth today. To me, I thought, that's insane. How is this possible? Um, You know, this is Mm -hmm. kind of one of the realizations that I have because, you know, you referenced Hilaire Balak, Hilaire Balak, who also said, uh, referring to the Catholic Church, that it's an institution that he is bound to hold divine because— the proof for divinity might be found in the fact that mm-hmm. no human institution conducted with such knavish imbecility could have ever lasted a fortnight, right? <laughs> the idea that, you know, look at the morons in charge. Um, and one might say that over the course of the centuries mm-hmm. that have passed between the Reformation and now, we haven't done all that much better, you know, depending on where you are and who's in charge of what it is that you're a part of. Uh, you know, it's it's a wild thing to, to think about. Um, one, yeah. But also, I think that's one. Th- yeah, go ahead. I, go I ahead. also think back on your your remarks about Saint Ignatius of Loyola, uh, because there are incredible reform movements going on within the church at the same time. The Carmelite reforms going mm-hmm. on uh, with Saint Teresa of Avila, uh, with John of the Cross. Um, you've got the uh, again the founding of the Jesuits, which some people might say is a mixed bag, depending on you know how you feel about that whole operation. But St. Ignatius saying, don't go to Rome because I don't want you to lose your faith, sounds of a similar flavor of what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter three or just chapter 23, uh, verses 1 through 3, when he speaks to the crowds and his disciples and says, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they mm-hmm. tell you, but don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Um, yeah, it's just a heartbreaking thing to look back on because— you know, think of how many people's faith was destroyed, not just in the Catholic Church, but in God, period, because of the mm-hmm. turmoil of that mm-hmm. era. Um, to me, I mean, there are people who like to score points over Reformation history, and I'm not one of those people, because to me, it's just a deeply saddening event in the history. Well, of it broke out. I, I mean, it broke out. It, it resulted in 100 years of religious wars. You were talking earlier about a lot of wars that aren't religious. It just happened to be religious people involved. 
there were real religious wars, a hundred years of them that took place after the Reformation where Protestant countries were slaughtering Catholics and Catholic countries were slaughtering Protestants. Um, and so much, much evil took place. Yeah, you're exactly right. So you were raised in what Steve Taylor referred to as the buckle of the Bible belt. You were right oh, there, Oh, Steve huh? Taylor. So, so to you, Catholicism was not a thing. As you said, but anyway, you know, Steve, uh, if you're watching, I love you. I love you, Steve Taylor. Squint is my favorite album. It's at least top 10 all time. Thank you, Steve Taylor. That's all I have. Okay. We're going to move forward. You're beginning to hint at these things here at the end, but we're going to be asking the question next week. How applicable is all this to our lives as Catholics, Orthodox and Protestant living in the 21st century? And we're going to see next week that it's much more applicable applicable in all ways, really, than we might imagine until we begin to actually walk through it. But um, but yeah, you're raising some really good points. I mean, obviously, we're sitting here now and we're Catholic. So we must have made some distinction between Christ's ability to lead his church in the truth and to preserve his church in the apostolic faith, even if at times um, many Catholics and even many of the those who belong to the Catholic hierarchy were corrupt even if that was the case. You know, God has still preserved the truth through the Catholic faith. The same people who decided on, you know, the Trinity at the early councils of Nicaea and Constantinople and the Council of Ephesus, Council of Chalcedon, the same people who decided on the books that are in the Bible, um, you know, are, are the same kind of people that walk the earth now. And in some places and sometimes you have, you have a church on fire and you have many, many saints. And other times and other places, you don't, you know. I've 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 read from Cardinal Seurat, for instance, in Africa, who talks about talks about the amazing growth of the Catholic Church in Africa over the last hundred years. I don't remember the numbers now, but he basically says the 20th century began with like two million Catholics and it ended with like 200 million Catholics. So extreme growth in many places where the church is on fire, and then uh, then uh, then other places where you just find spiritual deadness, and people need to pick up. Erasmus's book of the Enchiridion and read it, you know, with new eyes. Need to go back and read the sources. So anyway, we'll get to that next week, though, talking about the application to now. If you have any final words. Uh, Yeah, my my final words are just that not only have great saints helped carry us through, sometimes the greatest saints in the history of Christianity have come out of dumpster fires like this. Uh, It's actually quite extraordinary when you go back and look at, while the hierarchy in Rome is just royally falling down on the job and worse um god is raising up people throughout the body of christ um it's 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 happened throughout the centuries it's happened ever since you know ever since the ascension this has been going on but man what a mess what a mess this is a tough episode to do ken a tough episode to do because you have to look hard and fairly into the mess that it really was and in some ways continues and And we'll bring this up to the 20th century and apply it to ourselves next week. All right. Sounds good. I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, Ken, thank you so much. Thank you for watching and listening. Uh, Please do visit us at chnetwork.org. Head over to community.chnetwork.org if you want to participate in our online community. I'm Matt Swaim, Ken Hensley, my co-host. Thank you for being with us. Talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.